And now for something completely different. Ah! Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And good morning and welcome to the show. Of course, it's Tuesday as we get ready to uh, head into Christmas. Of course, right around the corner. Big question. Where the heck is Santa? Right? I mean, you know, we're supposed to be having the Santa Claus rally now. And uh, yesterday, markets sold off. And this morning, futures are pointing a bit lower. Uh, actually, a little bit mixed this morning. The Dow's actually up just a smidge, but uh, NASDAQ's down this morning. Uh, news that the Bank of Japan has changed the parameters of the yield curve control. We'll talk a little bit about that, uh, you know, in the next segment. But um, what's interesting is, is that, you know, we've often talked about the Japan, you know, the Japanification of the U.S., right? More debt, more deficits. Um, the, uh, basically, you know, just we've just passed another $1.7 trillion in a continuing resolution to fund the government next year. Uh, this has pretty much hampered any potential for the newly elected Republicans to come into the House of, you know, to, to the House and do any type of budget cuts, right? Because it's now already been funded, and uh, kind of a sneaky in run, you know, after the elections here. But you know, this is this is a problem: more debts, more deficits, right? There's there's no there's not been any cuts to spending. Yes, the deficit did reduce. Now, it's a bit of a misnomer, though. Right, because when we take a look at the deficit, what we had was five trillion dollars worth of stimulus being injected into the system in 2020, 2021, which really sunk us to about a two trillion dollar deficit. Well, as that money left the system, right, the deficit reduced. We're now back to our normal spending trend of a deficit, but that number is still increasing. We're now spending more than we were previously. Um, every year just to fund you know, government operations and more spending and these type of things. And, and, and this is the same path that Japan has been on for decades and can't get any type of economic growth. They have rolling recessions about every three years. Interest rates remain near zero. Now they're having to implement yield curve control. Some days they don't even have bids for bonds. I mean, it's just, you know, it's just a disaster economically. And these are the pathways that we're taking here in the U.S. to replicate that model because apparently it's worked so well for Japan that we think we need to do it here as, as well. But again, you know, we, we've talked about these issues of debts and deficits before. It doesn't lead to stronger economic growth, but hey, we keep trying it anyway. Um, you know, maybe, maybe this time will be different. Um, but the problem is, is that this is going to be something plaguing the economy as we move forward next year, potentially as we get into a recession, that debt becomes even more of a problem. But, you know, yesterday, again, markets did sell off and we actually, you know, deviated further below the 50-day moving average. So again, it took out that level of support. Um, now looking to retest these lows right around 3,800, maybe a little bit lower around 3,750 over the next day or so. There's some very mild support uh, right around that 3,750 level, not a lot. Uh, below that, we're starting to look at 3,600 to go back and retest the lows that we saw um, back in really kind of June and then again in September. Those, so those kind of two bottoms are, are kind of the next level of support for the markets of any, of any magnitude. Uh, if we break below that, it's uh, kind of, you know, all new levels. So we'll see kind of where we get there. But again, you know, the hope here is, of course, that we're moving in the last two weeks of the year. Hopefully, Santa Claus is going to come visit. This is time of the year that typically he shows up, visits Broad and Wall. 
And, you know, that's, you know, kind of get this window, uh, kind of window dressing by managers for, for the year end. Haven't seen it yet. Um, so we'll, we'll wait and see what happens. Again, uh, you know, statistics suggest that, you know, if Santa Claus fails to visit Broad and Wall, well, the next year is not great for stocks. That's, you know, kind of what we're not hoping for. <laughs> We would not like a lump of coal for Christmas, sir. <laughs> we would like something a little bit better. Um, but we do need to get a bit of a rally here. Now, there's, some, there's certainly some reasons that we could get a bit of rally here. Markets are getting fairly oversold on a short-term basis. So just a technical bounce uh, would not be surprising here over the next week or so. And again, kind of upside for the markets right around 38.50 um, at the moment. So again, not a lot of upside versus the downside risk that we currently have available. It's about split right now between upside, downside in the real short term. Um, we haven't looked at money flow indexes in a while, but those money flows have turned negative. We're on a sell signal now on the money flows. And, and that's going to also put downward pressure on asset prices along, of course, with our MACD signal. You know, we've talked about our MACD signal all year long, and that's been a really good indicator to, you know, increase or reduce exposure to portfolios. Right now, um, there's, we're on a pretty decent MACD sell signal. No reason at this point to increase exposure to portfolios. And again, that, that kept you out of trouble here too. Despite that sell signal, we had that really strong rally following the CPI report and then running into the FOMC meeting. You know, that, that head fake in the market was signaled by that MACD sell signal. It didn't, the, that signal didn't back up that rally suggesting that you shouldn't chase it. And that turned out to be exactly the right thing to do. Of course, you know, since then it's just been a straight downward shot. Uh, for the markets. So again, be a little cautious here as we move into year end. We're certainly hoping that Santa Claus will come and visit, but uh, at this point right now, it may be a really lean Christmas uh, because of inflation. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't know. We'll, we'll, we'll see what happens. Uh, but do trade carefully here over the next few days. There's certainly, uh, uh, there's certainly some risk as we start to move into next year. Again, now, so going into 2023, of course, you know, that's where really we're going to start talking about the risk of a recession, um, what that means, you know, really for earnings. And, and when we take a look at earnings, this is kind of a really good point, is that earnings right now are still running at $205 a share, according to the S&P for the end of next year. The long-term growth trend for earnings is about $160 a share. So there's still about a $40 gap between where earnings should trade in a recession and where they are now. So of course, if earnings do decline and earnings, as we talked about yesterday, earnings are still about 20% above their long-term growth trend, that's got to revert at some point. And if you have a recession, that's gonna come down. And if earnings come down, then prices have to come down as well. So again, there is certainly some risk going into next year that warrants remaining a bit cautious. There's gonna be some great trading opportunities in here. We'll be able to make some money on some trades, but as far as just kind of a buy and hold uh, type mentality next year, it could be some rough sledding. And this has been a really strange year because we've had record inflows into passive ETFs. I suspect that if we have more of the sloppiness going into next year that, well, we might see investors just going, you know what, I'm just done with this, just get me out. And if they start selling these passive ETFs, that's gonna be one of the real pressures for the markets because that's where a lot of money's been hiding uh, over the course of this year. So well, again, we'll keep a watch on this for you as well. But again, you know, markets are not, you know, have not worked through the entirety of their sell signals yet. That still suggests we've got some downside risk to markets here near term. Uh, oversold enough on a short term to get a bounce, as I said, 
uh, get a technical bounce here, sell into it, raise a bit of cash heading into year end, uh, kind of reposition your portfolio. Don't forget, still time right now to do some tax loss selling, uh, do some repositioning portfolios uh, for tax purposes uh, going into the end of the year. And then, of course, next year we can start this whole big cycle game all over again. So uh, good news is, is that the year's almost over. We're, we're getting there. Today's, you know, just five days to Christmas and we'll have all that. Now, market's open all week this week. We are closed on Monday uh, for Christmas. So um, five days of trading this week, four days next week. So we'll have a light trading week next week. And that's also, again, people are out, they're gone. So all, all this kind of trading going on in the market right now, uh, be very careful because volatility can, can reverse on you very quickly here because again, nobody's around trading. It's just pretty much a lot of guys with Robinhood apps on their phone. So <laughs> they're running the whole market right now. Anyway, take a quick break, come back to talk a little bit about what Japan did last night, kind of shocked the markets. And we'll talk about this yield curve control idea, which has been thrown around here in the U.S. as well. Uh, we'll be right back after the break. Realinvestmentadvice.com. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. In 1999, a parafiduciary group of financial advisors were busted by corporate giants for trying to operate in their clients' best interest. These men promptly escaped from a high-cost margin environment to the Houston Energy Corridor. Today, still excoriated by their former employers, they survive as protectors of others' fortunes. If you have a problem about preserving capital, if no one else can help, and you can find them right here, maybe you should hire the RIA team. The Real Investment Show. So welcome back to the show this morning. Of course, uh, it's Tuesday. Um, I do want to thank y'all for uh, hanging out with us all year this year. I want to wish y'all a Merry Christmas. We don't do that happy holiday nonsense. It's, it's, it's Merry freaking Christmas. That's what it yeah. is. <laughs> so anyway, if that offends your sensibilities, sorry, we say Merry Christmas in Texas. So there you go. Um, just have to get along with being in Texas. Um, but we do appreciate you very much. Uh, over the next few days, uh, we've got some of our best of shows lined up. Uh, Brent's been doing the yeoman's work of clipping some of our best stuff, uh, getting all together. So you'll have something to watch and catch up on and uh, keep you uh, entertained here for the next few days while we take a quick break and we're going to be retooling some of the show for next year and uh, renaming a few things, setting some things up. So we've got lots of new events and things coming for you as well. We've been doing a lot of planning so uh, we'll have a lot more events, candied coffees, lunch and learns, all kinds of stuff to keep you uh, educated as we work through next year. Uh, but again, we very much do appreciate you watching, tuning in, subscribing. You know, please refer us to anybody that you think they would benefit from listening to the show. We always appreciate the help. Um, so let's talk a little bit about what happened last night. Um, Japan launched a yield curve control adjustment. They've already been doing yield curve control here for a while, and they took some unexpected action uh, last night and changed the range of that 
yield curve control to a negative 0.5% to a positive 0.5%. And of course, immediately when they raised the upper end of that range from 0.2 to 0.25 to 0.5, immediately yields went right to 0.5. So not surprising. So it really kind of just sparked a a good bit of turmoil in the markets. But here, let me just read to you from this is from the Bank of uh, Japan. This was their statement on monetary policy from uh, last night. At the monetary policy meeting held today, the policy board of Bank of Japan decided to modify the conduct of yield curve control in order to improve market functioning and encourage a smoother formation of the entire yield curve while maintaining accommodative financial conditions. So what the hell did that just all mean? So yield curve control, if you don't understand what this means, um, that's the first thing to understand here because we're it has been tossed about more than once that the fed may eventually wind up doing yield curve control and what that means is is that the central bank would start purchasing enough bonds to cap interest rates so let's say that the fed wants interest rates on the 10-year treasury to be three percent i'm just picking a number right Uh, But 3% is deemed to be the optimal rate for the 10-year treasury to make the country operate effectively, whatever. 2%, 1%, pick your number. Just FYI, Bank of Japan's at 0.5. If that gives you any hint of where our yields are going. So what they do is they buy bonds. So again, what makes yields go up and down? Um, yields go up and down based on demand. So the more people that want to buy bonds, therefore driving the, you know, demand versus supply, more people that want to buy bonds, the prices of bonds go up, the yields go down. There's an inverse relationship between the bond price and the yield. So as the bond prices go up because of this purchaser of bonds, in this case, the Bank of Japan, yields come down. So if yields start to rise above whatever that that cap is that they want, they just start going in and buying bonds to, and providing enough demand to drop those yields back to that, that level. That's yield curve control. So basically, you're artificially adjusting interest rates for economic activity. Now, think about the consequences of that for a moment. And why anybody thinks this is a good idea is just beyond me. Interest rates are set by economic activity, inflation, and demand, right? So higher yields attract capital. So if I'm capping interest rates at some level, then I am basically socializing the economic process, right? And the problem with that, of course, is that once you start limiting where interest rates are, then, you know, you say, okay, I'm going to provide this artificial buyer. Then all of a sudden, interest rates aren't reflecting what's actually happening in the economy, good, bad, or indifferent. And they should. So you begin to artificially impact the way capital markets function. And, you know, in an environment where you might have 5% inflation, you've got a yield capped. I'm just throwing out examples here. But let's say you've got an environment where you've got 5% inflation and you've capped yields at 3%. Well, interest rates should track inflation because as a issuer of debt, right, so I'm going to loan money to somebody. When I, when, I, when I create an obligation with Brent, Brent's over here says, I want to buy, I want to borrow some money from, he wants to borrow some money from me to go buy something, right? He's going to go buy a new uh, scooter. 
Don't know why he's riding a scooter his age. It's just a terrible idea. But he wants to buy a scooter. So I'm going to loan him the money to do it. And so I say, okay, I'm going to loan you money for five years to buy this $39 scooter. And he's not very good with money. Um, so Scooter's going to last about two days. <laughs> exactly. $39. So, <laughs> so he borrows $39 for five years. And I've got to set the interest rate because I'm only going to get a set payment on that $39 loan for the next five years, right? Because of the interest rate. So if I set the interest rate at 3% and the inflation rate is 5%, I'm going to lose money over the next five years. So inflation and interest rates track each other historically because I am lending out fixed rate debt and I've got to accommodate. And, and the way that interest rates are set in the markets naturally on a natural basis is it is a function where the lender is bringing into account what's expected inflation, what's my risk that Brent is going to pay me back my $39 at some point. I've got to factor all that in. And then the, the interest rate that I charge is based on the sum of those risks, right? Interest rate risk, credit risk, default risk, blah, blah, blah. So if I'm capping the yield at some amount, I'm artificially influencing the yield curve, but I'm also impacting the functioning of the capital markets because if yields don't reflect inflation, economic activity, and wages, then there is less incentive to lend. Okay? You also attract less... Flow. So if we're so for instance, if we're yield, if we're capping our yields, so think about this other consequence. If we're th if we're capping our yields, say three percent on the ten-year treasury, and European yields go to five because of inflation, economic activity, whatever. Again, just making up numbers. Where is capital going to flow to? Am I if I am if I'm storing reserve currencies, am I going to buy US treasuries at 3% or am I going to buy euro bonds at 5%? Where am I going to store my capital? So these are the these are the problems with yield control. It's not good. And this is what Japan has already been dinkering with and results have been terrible. Let me just read to you a statement to make my point. The yield curve control adjustment is being reported as a mechanism to encourage better functioning in the bond market. Well, if yield curve control is such a, th a good thing, why is your bond market not really functioning? There are barely any bonds, that's, that's still a note, there are barely any bonds changing hands currently the BOJ says it's making this change as, quote, the functioning of bond markets has deteriorated, particularly in terms of relative relationships among interest rates of bonds with different maturities and arbitrage relationships between spot and future markets. If these market conditions persist, they could have a negative impact on financial conditions. Exactly what I was just telling you. I was using... Simplistic examples with Brent's $39 five-year loan. But that's the point.
Bank of Japan has also increased its bond purchasing limit to 9 trillion won a month. That's about $37, I think, um, from January through March. I'm not, I'm not sure what the exchange rate is, but it's not great. Uh, <laughs> I think a house there costs like 50 trillion won. I'm not sure. <laughs> Bear in mind, don't email me with like the price of Japan, Japanese homes. I'm just joking, okay? I'm just teasing. I'm just exaggerating here a bit. Don't take it all literal and get your panties all up in a wad. It's almost Christmas. Don't get your kimono up in a yeah, wad. Yeah, exactly. Just Christmas. Have a little fun with it. I, I'm talking to you, Dwayne, you Grinch. You heard from Dwayne this week? Yes, actually, he asked me when I'm when we're arriving in Utah. Ah, so he yeah. just he just had knee replacement surgery. So yeah. we're gonna go out. He's got a couple of twins. We're gonna go out and help him. And so the Roberts visit. vacation will be a spectator sport for Dwayne. For Dwayne, he will yeah. not. He, he's a great skier. He grew up skiing. He's an awesome skier. Mm-hmm. He's a lot of fun to ski with. Uh, but yes, he will be uh, watching from the sidelines this year. Sorry, Dwayne. Yeah. No. It's all good, though. Merry stinking Christmas. (laughs) Um, So the problem, as we said, is yield curve control sounds like a great idea. And it is where potentially the next evolution of Fed monetary policy will be. And all you can say is that we continue to model ourselves after Japan. Why? I have no idea. But we continue to go down the very same path, and as is always the case, expecting a different result. What did they say about that? Definition of insanity, maybe? Mm -hmm. Be right back after the break. investment advice blog it's required reading for the informed investor catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com in 1999 a parafiduciary group of financial advisors were busted by corporate giants for trying to operate in their clients best interest these men promptly escaped from a high cost margin environment to the houston energy corridor today still excoriated by their former employers they survive as protectors of others' fortunes. If you have a problem about preserving capital, if no one else can help, and you can find them right here, maybe you should hire the RIA team. You're listening to The Real Investment Show. All right. You people on YouTube watching right now, I just said I was joking about the Japanese conversion rate. And there was, of course, there's one of you Yahoo's went and posted the exchange rate. <laughs> I can get the exchange rate, okay? I was just being facetious. Killing me here. They're advertising on CNBC right now. They heard me too. Uh, <laughs> Merry Christmas. Bye, Humbug. Um, we wrote several articles back in 2020 about modern monetary theory. 
and that you know this was a very flawed idea and you know something that had been promoted by Stephanie Kelton who was this professor at Stony Brook University and she'd written a book and everybody was like fawning all over her I haven't I don't know if she's even still alive I've she heard kind of fell off the planet yeah, didn't she yeah when when it didn't work mm -hmm. <laughs> oh theory becomes reality yeah when theory yeah exactly <laughs> so but we wrote lots of articles about the fallacies of modern monetary theory. It took a lot of heat for it, too, because it was like, ah, you don't know what you're talking about. Modern monetary theory, it's, it's the thing. It's, it's going to be awesome. And, you know, and, and, and the big flaw in the whole modern monetary thesis was is that a government debt is a household's asset, which is completely BS. But from the accounting mechanism, you have to balance both sides of the equation. Right. So if, if I'm doing accounting, I have to have a debit and a credit and they have to equal zero. Right. That's just the way accounting works. And so when you're doing governmental accounting and you have debt on one side, you've got to have an equity on the other. Right. And they've got to balance each other. And so the whole theory was is that government debt's not a problem because it's a it's a household asset, which is completely ludicrous. Right. That when the government issues debt, all of a sudden you're wealthier. And that's not the, that's not the way it works at all. So the problem, of course, was everybody thought that we could just send checks to households and it'd all be fine. And, and, you know, government could just issue more debt. There's no limit to government debt because we can print our own debt, right? We can print our own currency. So pff, why not just issue more debt? So we did it. Everybody thought that this was going to be this grand idea and we were going to shift to modern monetary theory and it's going to solve all of our problems and the government would just keep printing debt, more debt, more debt, because, again, as long as we have our printing press, right, as long as we can issue our own currency, we can just issue debt, right? And there's no consequence to it because the debt of the government is an asset of the household. So pff, what could go wrong with that? Inflation. Which even modern monetary theory says... That when you do modern monetary theory, if you get inflation, then the government needs to do what? Raise taxes. Well, nobody wanted to raise taxes. So as is always the case, this is the same problem we've had for the last 40 years with Keynesian economics, right? John Maynard Keynes. Economist back in the 30s, and he said, you know what? When the economy has a downturn, the government should intervene, step in, and start spending programs, right? Issue debt and do spending programs to get the economy back out of a recession, get it back on track, and then everything's fine, right? And that's all, that's all, that's all Congress heard was, is, well, John Maynard Keynes says that when there's a downturn in the economy, issue more debt. So starting with Reagan, that's what we did. Had double back-to-back -back recessions, had surging inflation. Reagan came in, started issuing debt. We were running a deficit and started creating 9 million jobs, got the economy back on track. Then George Bush comes in, senior. He says, well, if a little debt was good, more debt's going to be better, right? So just continue the process. Then Clinton comes in. Well, if a little debt's good, more debt must be better. So we did more. And then Bush Jr. comes in, right? Well, if a little debt's good... A little more debt should be better. Then Obama comes in. Let's double the debt, because if a little debt was good, doubling the debt would be a lot better. And then Trump comes in. Well, if $9 trillion in debt was good, $9 trillion more should be good. So we did it again, right? And so now we're at $31 trillion in debt since 1980. 
do the freaking math. Okay? Now, during that time frame, what everybody forgot was what John Maynard Keene's other part of his statement was. See, this is, this is always the problem. This is a problem with MMT. This is a problem with John Maynard Keynes. We only read the part we like, which is issue more debt. Don't worry about it. Issue more debt, more spending. It's all good, right? But nobody looks at the other part. What John Maynard Keynes said was, is that in an economic downturn, the government should intervene, issue debt, to stimulate economic activity. Once the economy is growing again, the debt should be paid off, right? The deficit should be reversed back into a surplus to prepare for the next economic downturn. So we never did that. Modern monetary theory says, hey, you can issue debt, and when you get inflation, you got to hike taxes. We didn't do that. So we didn't like that part. We just liked the first part, issue the more debt part. And so this is why we're running $31 trillion in debt, continuing down, as I said in the last segment, you know, we're continuing down the pathway of J Japanification in the U.S. We're doing exactly the same thing. Now we're talking about yield curve control. They're doing yield curve control. It should all work out great. But this is why people are so upset with the economy, right? And why people are going, you know, capitalism sucks. You know, I want socialism, Marxism, fascism, whatever you want to call it, right? Pick, pick your flavor. Because obviously, if I don't have any, any opportunity, I should just get the government to pay for myself. So, you know, right now, Mike Rowe um, was doing an interview the other day and stuff that we've been talking about here on the show, and I thought it was interesting. Because we've been talking about this big gap between the BLS and the actual household survey data. There's about 2.7 million job gap between those two. And we just talked about uh, on Twitter the other day the Philly Fed is about to adjust that data. They said that, no, we did not create over a million jobs this year. We created 10,000 jobs. And so there's about to be these big em employment revisions to the employment data that's going to show a lot less employment this year than what people you know currently expect, right? These super strong job numbers really aren't that strong. And we've been saying for a while and here on the show talking about the, you know, the JOLTS numbers don't make sense. Um, you know, the employment numbers really don't make sense to a lot of degrees because you have, you know, you've got these people that are not working. Labor force participation rate isn't rising. If you've got a really tight labor force, right? If you've got a truly tight labor force, the labor force participation rate should be screaming higher. It's not. It hasn't been moving at all. Actually, it's been going down a bit. So, you know, all that's kind of going to come home to roost. But what Mike Rowe was talking about is like there's these 7 million people between the ages of 25 and 54, right? That's your prime working age population. They're just sitting out of the labor force. They just don't want to get a job. They, they've, they've opted out of working. Headline this morning coming into work on the radio 50% of millennials are living at home with their parents. So kind of start doing the math here. 50% of millennials living at home with their parents. 7 million men between 25 and 54 have opted out of the labor force. Just they, They're just not working. Why? Well, because I can get money. Right? I can, you know, we have surging disability claims. Disabilities is, is a fairly easy benefit to apply for. Hurt my back. I can't work. I need disability. Right? So student loans, right? Uh, a lot of people using student loans for things other than college. 
So, you know, it's fairly easy to get money. We've, we've done shows on this before, you know, and, and this was back during uh, when we were doing the show during the uh, financial crisis that people were making $70,000 a year off government benefits. So if you work the system, have multiple children and don't get married and do a variety of different things, you can... There's a lot of government programs that you can apply for. Not saying that's a good thing. It's just the way it is. So for 7 million men, and that's what we're talking about here, 7 million men have opted out of the labor force. They're sitting at home on the couch playing video games. If you don't believe me, just get on TikTok and see how many people are playing Modern Warfare 2 right now and streaming. (laughs) So it's a bunch. But they've opted out of the workforce. And they're just not working. And the, and the reason that they give is like, you know, you're not paying me what I'm worth, right? Me going to work and spending all my day at a work doing a job I hate and not getting paid what I feel I'm worth for. See, there's the trick, right? I'm not getting paid for what I feel I'm worth. Why, why should I do it? I'll just sit at home and live in my parents' basement. And so, these, and so the, the, that is a weight on the economy. And it doesn't work. The MMT didn't work. It created all kinds of different problems. We tried, look, we tried the government, you know, we tried this guaranteed income program, right? We gave everybody just checks, and all they did was ran out and spend them, and now they're out of money again. So now what? There are at least 82 municipalities across 29 states now engaged in guaranteed income experiments, including more than 70 with pilot programs created within the past year, according to the coalition of more than 100 American mayors promoting the concept. Mayors for guaranteed income and proponents among municipal officials nationwide are encouraging local governments to seed pilot programs with federal pandemic assistance from the $350 billion in taxpayer-funded state and local governments that came out of the $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan that was adopted in March of 2021. The goal is, is to give people more money. But what are you going to do when the money runs out? You've got to go get more. And where does it come from? The people that are working. So the more people you have working that then opt out to get the free money, you got less people working to pay into the system. Do you see where this winds up? Japanification of the U.S. Be right back after the break. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. In 1999, a parafiduciary group of financial advisors were busted by corporate giants for trying to operate in their clients' best interest. These men promptly escaped from a high-cost margin environment to the Houston Energy Corridor. Today, still excoriated by their former employers, they survive as protectors of others' fortunes. If you have a problem about preserving capital, if no one else can help, and you can find them right here, maybe you should hire the RIA team. The Real Investment Show.
Well, you know it's Christmas when you get the annual list of things that you can and cannot say at home when your family comes over to visit. And the list grows every year, you know, oh, yeah. so yeah. It, it just it, it, every year we have more more things that we should and should not say to people. And I thought it was interesting that this year's word is Karen. <laughs> Trust me, <laughs> if you come to my house and you throw a fit over something, I'm going to call you a Karen. That's just mm. all there is to it. <laughs> so, yeah, so apparently you know, the word Karen is out because that offends people named Karen, I guess. <laughs> And by the way, one of the best employees we have at our firm is is named Karen. And That's we love right. Her. We love her to death, and she She's is awesome. <laughs> and she will kick any millennial's butt all day long at work ethic. And she's 59 years spry young. <laughs> Amen, brother. Exactly. So I call her Karen all the time. Because that's her name. And she answers to it. <laughs> she answers to it. <laughs> so, anyway, don't say, don't call anybody Karen. I thought, th- I thought there were some other good ones here on, the, on this, because I guarantee if you come to my house, this is going to get thrown around <laughs> at some point, killing two birds with one stone. That gets said all the time. It, it normalizes violence against pigeons, so I guess. <laughs> I mean, you know, if you've got a turkey and a duck, yeah, that's two birds with one stone. Exactly. <laughs> and if you stuff a chicken into it, you get three birds with exactly. one stone. Exactly. Get a turducken. I've not had one of those in a long time, by the way. Oh, they're so good. I know they are, but I'm, I'm again, I'm not a big fan of turkey. So. Yeah. yeah. Now, if they would take a brisket and stuff it with ribs and sausage. Ah. Now you're talking. Yeah, baby. See? I like that idea. You like that idea. I don't can, know what, can we come over and try that out? I guess you call it a. I don't. What, I don't know what you call it. A, a turbruskin? <laughs> no, there's no turkey in it. It's brisket, ribs, and sausage. <laughs> just stop. There, stop right there. Just no, stop. There's there's a, a barbecue place up on FM nineteen sixty in Houston. Okay. That has a PBJ sandwich. Okay. Right. Right. PBJ. Pork, brisket, and I don't know what the J is, but anyway, <laughs> it's good. I'm, I'm sure it is. Oh, man, it's good. <sighs> now, now, see, now you made me hungry. I know. Yeah. People well, forget. I mean, I've already been. It's, Ten it's, minutes, I've you're off, had, man. I have not had breakfast yet. It's I've been up three hours already. Are you been. on the coffee diet? What do you mean? My son is on the coffee diet. What's the coffee diet? He... D- ingests nothing but coffee all day okay. until 6 o'clock. And then he goes hog wild, eating anything he wants. He's lost a ton of weight. Yeah, but as soon as he stops to diet, it's all going to come right well, back. Well, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. So, And that can't be good for your system. Oh, and he's got the jitters. <laughs> I, I can only imagine. <laughs> so is he drinking his coffee black? How's he yeah, drinking? Yeah. yeah. He doesn't he, no chemical additives. Yeah. He's going to die of a heart attack. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so uh, more, more things you can't say yes. uh, for Christmas um, when my kids come home from college right um, I can't call them homeless person immigrant prisoner or prostitute because they don't work they mooch off the household they want more money names kind of seem to fit yeah <laughs> 
If the tag fits, wear it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you have a place to live? No, you're homeless. <laughs> just saying. I don't know. I just, I, I, I get, I get where you're trying to go, right? You don't want to offend anybody. You don't talk religion or politics, you know, over, over the Christmas table, mm-hmm. right? But I mean, come on. This list is I mean, just well, and, then, and also too, you know, when you have to put trigger warnings in front of a Warner Brothers cartoon, yeah, you know, yeah, Porky Pig might have blackface. You know, just come on, people, time to grow up. Put your big boy pants on. Stop being let's, a pansy. I don't, let's 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 move forward with life. <laughs> but it is interesting. I mean, because you know, when you start going back to the fact that you've got a you've got the most millennials living at home with parents now since mm-hmm. World War II. Now, that's you know, again, World War II was a very different situation. Yeah, we're not talking the Waltons here either. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. You just came out of the Depression. There wasn't a lot of work, um, but. Unless you, you know, went into the military, which had a very <laughs> didn't have a, a high survival rate at the time. No, no. Um, but you know, that has an economic impact on the economy. And, and look, I get why people are living at home. It's like they want to blame it on high rent. And here's the interesting thing, right? Why are millennials living at home? They say it's the high cost of rent. They can't afford to rent anything. Where are they spending their money? On luxury goods. So luxury goods are doing great with millennials because they're spending their money on that rather than spending their money on rent. But again, this goes back to the fact, I can't make enough to have rent and buy luxury goods, so I'm just going to live at home so I can buy my luxury goods. Priorities or problem. And look, and this is, this is a big problem with parents, Right. And parents are enabling kids to do this. They're saying, oh, I understand, you know, life's tough, whatever. You can just stay here until you get on your feet. Well, you know, if if your kid's at home and they're 29 and still living at home, that's enabling, right? At some point, as a parent, you've got to say, time to get up on your feet, get out of the house, go figure it out. And that's, that's the way parents were, you know, our parents parents before this generation you turned 18 got to go got to go figure it out right got to got to get out there and, and spread your wings and start being an adult and that's what generates economic activity right how do we create economic activity we have to produce first in order to consume that's what creates economic activity the more we produce the more we can consume the more we consume the more demand there is which requires more production which gets more people employed which also brings wages up, which allows us to consume more, which then creates more demand, which requires more production, which leads to more jobs and employment, which raises wages, which allows more consumption. And this is virtuous cycle. But the problem is, is that when parents refuse to eject the children, the working age population into the economy and say, get to work, it actually impedes the economic cycle which is why we struggle with low rates of growth and wages. So these are the issues. But again, this is, you know, instead of addressing these issues, as we've talked about before, in terms of allowing capitalism to function properly, we keep coming up with all these ideas, right, to try to skirt around the issue of modern monetary theory, right, the guaranteed income programs. 
and they've all they've all failed, right? If if I give somebody a thousand dollars a month, and again, you know, this is as we talked about before, you know, the big problem with the whole you know stimulus checks and all this was is like, great, we're going to give people you know extra money to help offset you know the cost of living, right? Because you know everybody's out of work right now because we shut down the economy, so here's some money. And we're going to, you know, increase your child care benefits, you know, whatever. That's all great. And then what happened? Everybody that says, oh, you have more money, we're going to raise our prices because you've got money. You can afford higher prices. So all the prices went up, which is why we have inflation. And now everybody's complaining. It's like, hey, there's all this inflation. I can't afford to pay for this stuff because there's no more money coming in. So now prices have to start coming down because there's no money. And now you have this inflation and that'll lead to deflation next year. And here we are back in the cycle again. So the problem with all these programs are, is that, great, I'm going to give everybody $1,000 a month. Awesome. Everything in the world that you spend money on now goes up by $1,000 a month, right? So you're back exactly to where you were previously. So now I've got to increase it to $2,000 a month. Prices go up again. i got to increase it to $3,000. Prices go up again. And that's the way it's going to work. Prices aren't stagnant. Prices reflect demand. The more money I give to people, the more demand there will be, the more prices are going to rise. You're going to have inflation. So the only way that guaranteed income programs work is you have to continually increase them to offset the cost of inflation. But the problem that everybody forgets is, where's the money come from? It comes from taxpayers. And if you're giving me enough money that I can sustain a standard of living. I can sit at home in a one-bedroom apartment because we've now put yield, we've put price controls on apartments to keep a, you know apartment rents, you know low enough for people to afford. So everything kind of becomes a Section Eight housing program around the country. So now we've got people that are getting the guaranteed income sitting in Section Eight housing, funded by the government and other taxpayers, not working. Right? They're all at home playing video games. And the more people that figure this out, the more people that drop out of the labor force that are sitting at home now collecting taxpayer dollars to play video games. And there's these few suckers out here that are still working and creating a living for themselves going, what the hell am I doing? So they stop. See the problem. This is the problem with socialism. That's how socialism pushes everybody to the lowest end of the spectrum. Socialism sounds great on the surface, but it eventually drives everybody to the lowest common denominator because the guys that are producing going, why am I doing all the work producing and paying all these taxes when I could just sit at home, play video games and have the government give me money? That's the part that everybody forgets. And if we get to that point, I'm going to sit at home and play video games. I'd like to check. I'm tired of paying taxes personally. Just got a letter from the IRS yesterday saying, you underpaid your W-2 income tax last year. Please send us $1,000. Fine. What are you going to do with it? Give it to homeless people? Yeah. <laughs> We're going to give it to people out in California? <laughs> All right. Wraps up the show for today. Merry Christmas. We will see you on January 3rd for our next live show. Uh, but stick around. We will have a three minutes on markets and money coming up shortly. Our new article is out on the website today, how gardening can help you manage your portfolio better. It's all at the website, realinvestmentadvice.com.